know, I had no idea that Pastor David was going to be leading, you know, the set that he did today. And it has everything to do with what I'm going to be preaching on today. Uh, actually, that last song that we sang, it's, it's titled All Is For Your Glory. And it is one of those songs that's actually very hard to sing and mean it. Uh, the lyrics are very challenging to say, like, really, like, <laughs> in many ways, right? <laughs> More ways than one. It is very wordy, but more so than that, the actual content, right? The content of it is if you sit down and you think about what Pastor David just made you sing, right? All is for your glory. Lord, put me anywhere. Put your, just put your glory in me and I'll do anything. Just let me see your beauty. You're saying you're giving God a blank check. You're telling him the one condition that I have is that I get to see who you are that I get to marvel at who you are. I get to feast on who you are. And that's my one condition. Everything else is fair game. I'm willing to follow you anywhere. I'm willing to do anything. And, you know, as we were singing this song, it had been a while since we've sang this song as a corporate, you know, like here on a Sunday. Um, And what I was feeling the Lord saying as we were singing this song is, um, God was saying, this is your anthem. This is your cry as a church. Um, And it is perhaps something that you've drawn away from in the last couple of years, but you are reclaiming the song now. It's like, you're going to come to a place where you can actually sing this with all your heart and mean it. Like this is the kind of church that God is building up here. A church that will say, look, catch me up in your story. There's something much greater, bigger than what I understand. Um, And I want to be a part of that. Whatever that takes, whatever it looks like, I'm willing to go there. I want to see your name being lifted high and that be the one thing that I'm about. And so, yeah, reclaiming that song and being able to really mean it as a community, it's, it's a huge thing. It's not just lyrics. It's actually a heart posture where we give God full access to lead us in the way that he wants. Um, and I don't know if you guys know the, the, the ministry that actually wrote this song. It's not just... You know, a, a, you know, a songwriter kind of sitting down with their guitar and being like, you know, this rhymes with this. And like, this is a great idea. No, this was, this is a song that was birthed in the house of prayer. Um, it's known as IHOP, uh, IHOP, International House of Prayer. And this is a company of people who decided that God was worthy of worship 24 seven. And so they didn't just mentally assent to it. And they didn't just like, oh, my heart, I know that he's worthy. They quit jobs. They moved their families. They rearranged their schedules in order that God would get worship 24-7. That's the kind of community that would birth a song like this. It's not just flowery, poetic language. It is a life mission statement. And so coming from um, people that have actually not just talk the talk, but they've walked the walk and they've made very difficult decisions in order to testify to the world that Jesus is worthy of this and more. Um, that is quite, quite a story and quite a witness. And I believe that's the kind of sold out, you know, unabashed, unapologetic, wholehearted worship that God desires from this community as well. Not a community that is out, you know, like, like how many hours did I do today? Or like how much did I give of my time and my finances and, you know, whatever to God? Oh, that's enough. That's sufficient. You know, I think I'm good. Um, whereas um, I believe that God is calling us to be a community that doesn't just 
give the bare minimum. Like, can I get away with this little? More of a community that begins to ask the question, how much more can I give? How much more can God have of me? How much more can I surrender? And so that's quite a journey for us to get back to that place. I believe that that is something that has marked our community in the last few years. And I believe that that's something that God is also leading us into once again. It's still there. That, that heart to give God everything is still there. And I think as a community, as we're walking through healing and now through now building the church, that heart cry, I think, is in everybody here. There's a desire in you. You're designed to want to give God everything and make your life count towards something much bigger than your own comfort, your own career, your own advancement. And so I believe that that's why most of us are here. We believe that God is able to do it, and we're giving ourselves over to this. And so kind of in light, um, in light of that, um, today's, you know, we, we shared last week uh, the vision statement for the church, and it's calling all to the feast. Um, it's leading up to it, we talked for three weeks about the parable of the two sons. And um, so last week when we shared about what this vision statement means. It's not just something that sounds nice. It's not just a a motto or a tagline, but it's going to incorporate these three main components. It's going to talk about the great commandments, so loving God and loving others, the great commission, making disciples of all nations, and lastly, the forerunner calling, the pre is on the cross, the preparing the way of the Lord. So these are the three main components of what it means to call all to the feast. And so this is just to give you an idea of what it's going to look like for the next uh, few weeks. Uh, Today we're talking about the great commandment. Next week is K1 Sunday. Uh, So we're going to take a time to worship and pray together as a community. Um, Then we're going to be talking about the great commission. uh, And then we're going to end this kind of series with talking about what the forerunner calling is all about. And then the week after that, it's already retreat. It's crazy to think that it's already here. We're kind of panicking a little bit. It kind of crept up on us a lot quicker than we expected. And so that's what's coming up for the next few weeks. And so today we're going to be focusing on the great commandment, what it means to love God and love others. others. And then um, I wanted to start out with this question for all of us. And is you know, one of the bigger life questions. And it is, how does God define a life well-lived? What does success look like in God's eyes? What does a successful church look like in God's eyes? If we don't begin to ask these questions of ourselves and of our lives, we are basically giving room for the world to define that for us because the world will define that for us. The world will say, this is what a successful life looks like career-wise, financially, you know, you're married with one point, two point something children. I don't know. Uh, You have a dog and a picket fence or, you know, whatever that ideal life looks like. Um, when you think about where should I be right now, whatever age you're at right now, I'm, I'm 25 years old. Where should I be at 20? I'm not 25, obviously. Uh, somebody out there is 25, but you know, whatever age you are, you should be asking yourself this question. I am so-and-so years old. Am I living a life that God would consider well-lived? You don't need to wait until you're 90 on your deathbed. Like, did I live this life well? No, you can do that now. And you need to begin to ask this question of you. How does God define that? Um, If we are not careful, once again, we're going to begin to define it in terms of how far up the corporate ladder you are, how much influence you believe you have in whatever workplace God has you in, how many children you have, um, 
what is, you know, your, your status, how many friends you have, what your social media, you know, uh, following looks like all these things will begin to define whether you believe that you are living a life that is pleasing in God's sight or not. And yet God seems to have a very clear picture and very clear metrics about what a life well lived looks like. And it is framed in this way, according to the Bible, um, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says it this way. So he had an expert in the law was testing Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So he's basically somebody who's well-versed, who's probably memorized most of the Old Testament. And he's basically bringing this to Jesus and saying, what is this all about? What does it all boil down to? So I've memorized all these things. I can write them out. I can recite them. You know, I sing songs about them. But what does it all mean in the end? And he's asking all these laws I'm keeping, all these rituals and sacrifices and life choices, all these books I've committed to memory, what does all this mean? And this is how Jesus answers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so when we think about what that means, it's not just, you know, a quick and shallow answer that Jesus gives to the teachers of the law. He talks about what it looks like when you are loving God with all your heart, soul, mind. And then according to another passage in Mark 12, it adds the word strength as well. So we're talking about loving God with all your affection, loving God with all your volition, loving God with all your intellect and loving God with all your might. What does that mean? Loving God with all your heart. It means that it's not enough just to do the right things. God actually wants the affections of your heart. It matters to him that you're connecting with him at a heart level. Often we kind of relegate this to like, ah, oh, those are the, you know, the different kind of people. They're like touchy feely people. The people who like that warm, fuzzy feeling. No, this is primary. What it means to love God this is the first thing he talks about. You need to love him with your affection. It doesn't matter what you say or, or do, but if your heart is not in it, if you're not giving him your affection, then you're not really loving God with your, all your heart. And so that's really important for me to lay out because I hear this all too often where you'll put other primary things before that way before, like, how am I doing with the Lord? Like, am I giving myself over to him? in my affections, in my time, in, in how much I savor every moment that I spend with him. That's really what communion is about. You know, it's, if, if you think about it this way, imagine you're, you know, you are married to, to your spouse and your spouse, you know, says, okay, once a week, I'm going to spend time with you. And I'm going to take my body to that restaurant and I'm going to sit down and we're going to order food and we're going to eat it. And then we're going to get out and that's going to be our date night, you know, for the week. And imagine you had everything but their affection, you had everything but their heart. So they get your time, they get your finances, they get your, your, your actions and your intentionality, all of that. But they, you don't get their affection. Would you be okay with that? Like, no, no, like. There'd be nothing in you that would be satisfied with that. And often we think like, okay, 
that's just for people, but God doesn't really need our affections. That's completely false. All over, all over the Bible, God is crying out, longing for our love and our heart as people. Did you know we are the one creature in the entire universe, in all of creation, that gets to have this privilege? The creatures around the throne cannot do that for him. The angels around his throne cannot do that for him. Like uh, a, a toad or a whale or a dog, they can't do that. God is longing for the affection of one creature in all of creation and that is mankind you reserve a very unique position in being able to bless god's heart as mankind and so god longs for your affection second loving the lord with all your soul it means with all your devotion your choices your obedience you choosing him over and over and over again that's what it looks like to love the lord with all your soul It means it's not just in the emotional realm. It's acted out. It means that there's an outworking of that affection. So your life should look different. It's not just an internal reality that we mentally assent to God and we emotionally respond to him. There needs to be action coming out of that as well. And that's what it looks like to love the Lord with all your soul. Loving the Lord with all your mind. When we think about the concept of faith, Often we think about, okay, faith means shutting off your intellect. It means like you don't think about like logic anymore. You don't think about what makes sense anymore. And we kind of shut down that part in our lives and and the way that we are designed. By the way, according to God's image, God is also an intellectual being. So that part, we decide to shut it down in order to pursue, quote unquote, faith. But God longs to be loved with our intellect as well. This is why understanding the word is so important. This is why going into Bible studies and going deeper into the word is so important because we don't just love him with our volition. We don't just love him with our affections, but also with our mind. And we live in a generation that is looking for answers and we cannot be naive enough to think like, okay, well, if they just would stop thinking and just believe and that would fix everything but that doesn't fix everything there is definitely an area and a realm of mystery things that we will never understand until we see calls to face again but there is a whole spectrum of things leading up to that where god calls us hey steward your intellect learn about me read up on me listen to podcasts look up articles we have all these resources Uh, available to us and yet we cannot believe that this is not a way for us to worship god this is also a way for us to worship god so hopefully this comes as a reassurance to people who are you know more weighed towards intellect as well you are worshiping the lord when you're learning about him when you're teaching about him when you are looking up commentaries or you know listening to teaching you are worshiping the lord and loving the lord with all your mind and then lastly Loving the Lord with all your strength. So with all your might. It doesn't just mean passion or loving him ardently. It also actually translates to resources. You know, in Old Testament language, loving the Lord with all your might, it means with all your resources that are made available to you. Your your sign of power, that is what you love the Lord your God with as well. So we're not just talking about, okay, instead of worshiping like, oh, my my God, my joy, I'm going to sing with might and that's all that it means to love the lord with all your might it's not just that although it does mean that it also means loving the lord with all your resources as well this is often something that we 
don't feel very comfortable talking about in church settings. When people get kind of dodgy, they're like, you can talk about my affections. You can talk about my volition. You can talk about my intellect, but don't touch my resources. Don't touch my finances. As long as you don't touch that, then I'm good. But this is an area that also needs to be submitted to the Lord. We need to be surrendered to the Lord in the area of finances. And no person is exempt from this. Doesn't matter if you are poor. Doesn't matter if you're rich. Doesn't matter if you have tons of resources at your disposal or, or you have nothing. You still love the Lord with all your might, all your resources. We see that when Jesus looks at a widow who puts down two copper coins, right, into the coffer. And it's not, it's not like she said, look, um, I'm poor. This is all I have. So I guess I'm exempt from loving the Lord with this part of my life. No, she actually gave, even with the little that she had, she gave. And that was a way of loving the Lord with all her might as well. So there's no person that is exempt from any of these four. You have a heart, you have a soul, you have a mind, and you have a uh, mind, you have strength. Uh, and so all of us are called to love the Lord with all these four different areas. Not, you can't exclude one. You don't get to pick and choose all four. You love the Lord with all four of these things. Now, before we move on, we have to define what love means. Because once again, this is an area that the world will define for us unless we do so biblically. So we are, we've grown up in a generation that defines love according to, you know, like media and entertainment in a particular way. Um, but the Bible describes this, uh, describes love in four different ways. Number one is that it's a, more an action than an actual abstract kind of concept more an action than a noun in that's more a verb than a noun so when we see first john three eighteen, it says dear children let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth it means that if you're talking about loving god but then your life doesn't look like it's loving god then you're actually not loving that's what that's what first john is talking about second is that it's a choice it's a choice. You actually get to choose. It's not inevitable. It's not accidental. It's a choice that you make. In Romans 5, it describes God's love for us in this way. It says, no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He had a choice. He was not obliged to die for you and me. It wasn't inevitable. It wasn't like, oh, things are just leading this way. I'm just going to go with the flow. No, it was a choice. It was a decision that he had to wrestle with as well. So love is not this automatic, like, I'm just going to follow my emotions. No, it also requires making a choice among many choices. It means you have to say no to something in order for you to say yes to something. We cannot say yes to everything. And so even as we love the Lord and we long to see what that looks like expressed in our lives. We're going to have to say no to certain things. And this is just part of adulting. This is part of reality. Part of what it means to live as salt and light in this world. It means that your life is not going to look like your neighbors. And we have to come to terms with that. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, your life should look different. If you're loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your life should look different. Your choices should look different as well. 
Third is obedience. So John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And he's addressing a very particular loophole that we like to kind of like try to wig, like, you know, squirm ourselves into. And it's like, you know, like I can, I can pick and choose what kind of God I want to follow. Like what he actually says, I can pick and choose what I'm actually going to do. So I get to look at the Bible and be like, well, I'm not comfortable with this part. This part I am. So let me follow this. Let me obey this. But this part, like, I'm not really sure. Um, And Jesus is saying, like, no, if you're not obeying God, then it means you're not loving God as well. So it means it looks like obedience. It means your life should be obedient and submitted to the word of God. So this is completely redefining the way that we think about love. It's not this flowery feeling in the pit of your stomach. It is, it has flesh and bones to it. It has repercussions in your life. It should affect every part in your life. And lastly, he defines it in John 15 as sacrifice. He says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. In John 3, 16, it describes it like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Once again, it was a choice and it was a choice that made him choose sacrifice. It means that one party was going to be gaining and he was going to be losing. It's going to benefit a party. It's going to cost one party. And that is what sacrifice looks like. That is how God defines love as well. So when we go back to Matthew 22, Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. It means something completely different than it does at first sight. It has huge, huge ramifications in your life. It means that a believer of God, a lover of God, their lives look completely different from someone who doesn't love the Lord. Then he finishes that statement by saying first and greatest, first and greatest meaning in priority and importance and in order. It means that everything falls into place once that first commandment falls into place. It means that that's the first building block. You cannot build on something unless you have a sure foundation. That needs to be your sure foundation. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything else flows from that. Sometimes there are people who will be like, well, I'm not really good at that. But I'm really good at loving my neighbor, right? The second commandment. So can I, you know, just be like, okay, I'm going to major in this and I'm going to minor in this, Right? God's saying like, no, no, no. This is the first commandment in importance and priority and in order. You cannot love your neighbor rightly unless you understand God's love for you and you love God back. You don't have the resources it takes to love someone who's imperfect unless you're tapping into God's perfect love. Does that make sense? It means that this needs to be a primary calling. So if you're looking, you're praying about, you know, what, what am I going to pray into for the next year? This should be it. Like, this is a surefire way of like, okay, you're going to be set for the year. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment in priority and importance and in order. And then he goes on to say the second is like it. So it is similar. There's overlap there. Love, the same way that was defined by action, by obedience, by sacrifice, and what was the third one? Fourth one? Choice. Through all those ways, loving your neighbor as yourself. 
loving your neighbor as yourself. And so he was talking about this to teachers of the law. And rightly so, they'll ask the follow-up question, right? They'll ask the question. So now that you mentioned that, so who's my neighbor, right? And they're not asking out of like, okay, so I need to know who it is that I need to bless. I need to know who it is that, you know, you want me to, you know, love. It is actually being asked from a place of like, so who can I exclude? It's like, so who do I get to not love? So for example, if you told me like, hey, you as a pastor, you should love people in your congregation. I'm like, okay, so what do you define as in our congregation? You know, you're like, ah, she's not after like, okay, I'm going to love this person. That but you're like, my thinking is like, you're trying to figure out who can you weed out, right? Who can you weed out? Who do you not need to really love, right? And so that's the same question that's being asked of Jesus. So who is my neighbor? And this happens in Luke 10. And so they're asking Jesus not so that they'd know who to extend love to, but who they were free to exclude from this. They were basically asking the question, do they need to be people I like? People that believe the same thing that I do? People with the same racial background? People with a similar social standing? People that are in the same spiritual, you know, maturity level? People who have an authority position like I do? They were trying to figure out, okay, this is the nitty and the gritty. Where can I draw a line? Who are the people that I don't need to love? And Jesus answers this question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And basically his answer is like a slap in the face, right? It, said in a nice way, right? But he is basically saying there is no person, no matter how far you think that you are, how different you think that you are, how unmerited you think that love is, you showing mercy to someone who can't pay you back, someone that you traditionally look down upon, Somebody who is at enmity with you, it is those people that you're called to love. Basically, a distance between a Jewish Pharisee who is at the top of the social ladder and a Samaritan common man who is at the bottom of the food chain. That distance, that distance, and even then, you're called to love and show mercy to that person. Even then, they are your neighbor. And in that way, Jesus is saying, no one's excluded, by the way. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we go back to what Jesus is saying, he's saying all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you want to know what the entire Bible is about without reading the entire Bible, although you should read the entire Bible, it is that. It is that. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets, every book of the Bible is about this. It's a remix of this. It's a different packaging of this. It boils down to this. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So the way that I explained how this, how this applies to us then as a church, I explained it in two different ways last week. We talked about, then that means that we're called to personal and intimate relationship with God. We must start from the place where we only love because he loved us first and we only feast and delight in him because he feasts and delights in us. And so there's joy, there's celebration, and there's true communion made available for fallen man with a holy God. You and I are called to have personal and intimate relationship with God. Doesn't mean that how your mom believes, how your dad believes, how your pastor believes, how your, CG, uh, how your house church leader believes. 
It doesn't, that, that is always good when it's there, but that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is how are you going to relate to God? It means that you can't bank on corporate affection, corporate passion, corporate hunger. I think that is there and it, it needs to be cultivated. And that's a really amazing and beautiful thing to see in a community, but it doesn't just magically start in a mob that really loves God. It has everything to do with, okay, so you, how are you going to love God? Without your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How are you going to love your neighbor as yourself? Often we kind of look to our right and to our left. We look over our shoulder and we're like, okay, as long as I'm doing better than my neighbor, you know, as long as I'm doing better than that guy over there who's like really struggling, then I feel like I'm set. Like God's saying like, no, don't look at your neighbor. Don't look at them. That's none of your business. My business with you is like, how are you relating to me? Are you savoring the moments that we spend together? Are you looking for ways to honor me and love me in your workplace? Are you making space for me in your schedule? These are important questions because nobody else can answer those things other than you. And no one's going to be checking up on you. No one's going to be like, hey, did you have your QT today? Okay, how many minutes was it? That's not going to happen. It's going to be between you and the Lord. And it's an invitation. It's not an obligation. Once we tap into this, there's joy and freedom, and acceptance, and worship like you've never tasted before. That's what's on the other side. When you no longer have to spend time with your spouse, but you get to spend time with your spouse. That's a game changer. That's a turning point. And that's what God calls us to cultivate in our own lives. Again, it doesn't happen magically, and it doesn't happen immediately. But there needs to be a God word orientation in our lives, in our hearts, in our intellect, in all, in every area of our lives in order for us to start heading in that direction. doesn't mean that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and you're going to be like, Oh, I'm magically really in love with the Lord and I'm loving him with all my might, uh, soul, mind, strength, heart. Yes. All those, um, it's not going to magically happen. It, it, it requires cultivation. It requires De- deliberate action, choices, sacrifices. It requires all those things. But let me tell you, it is so worth it. It is so worth it. Imagine somebody had, what's the latest, I don't know, iPhone. What's the latest iPhone? 11. How much does it cost? Huh? A lot. <laughs> an arm and a leg. Okay, an arm and a leg. Let's say, like, imagine it costs, like, I don't know, two grand or something. I don't know. Imagine it costs two grand and somebody was to tell you, okay, look, just for you, a brand new iPhone, I'm going to give it to you for 20 bucks. You wouldn't be like, oh, so terrible. You're making me buy this. No, you'd be like, yeah, that's like a great deal. I'm getting something worth two grand for 20 bucks. Heck yeah. I'm the winning party here. It benefits me completely. It's the same thing when it comes to God. We feel like, oh, such sacrifice and, oh, woe is me. And like, it's so hard. There are moments when it's hard. Yes. But we are the winning party here. We benefit far more than we lay down. We are paying a sliver of a cost and we're getting so many benefits in return. We get to lay down maybe what? 30, 40, 50, 60 years in this life, and we get an eternity of a God who's perfect, loving, kind, compassionate, just a God who's perfect beyond anything we can understand. That's what we get in return. And so paying just for these few years with this 
short, but a breath life, it is like paying 20 bucks for something that is worth two grand. So we are the winning party here. So I don't want us to have this idea of like, I guess I have to love the Lord and it's going to be really terrible. I'm going to be miserable and my life is going to, you know, that's not the way that we are called to live a Christian life. A Christian life is called to be filled with joy, with this understanding that, yes, there's going to be costs. We cannot overlook the fact that there's going to be pain. There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be times where it's going to be really hard for us to hold on to our faith. And yet we need to always have in the back of our mind that what we're getting returned is so much more. An eternal glory. Eternal glory compared to the, this meager suffering. Short and temporary affliction compared to what we're getting. So that always needs to be in the back of our mind. That is what unlocks the freedom to worship God joy, painful and miserable life to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It actually becomes an invitation. It becomes something desirable and something inspiring also to people around you. I don't know if somebody worshiped, I don't know, like Buddha and they look like miserable doing it. Like, like really like they hated their life every second of it. I'd be like, there's nothing in me wanting to worship that God. You look like a slave. He looks like a slave driver. I want nothing to do with that, you know? And often that's how we paint our God to be as well. If our lives are, you know, miserable, like, oh, I hate this, but I have to do it. There's no joy in it. There's no feasting in it. There's no sense of communion. And man, this, is, this isn't life-giving, you know? If that's all we experience on this side, then we are communicating to a watching world that that's the kind of God that we serve. A God who wants obedience from people who are gritting their teeth and just hoping that they don't mess up until they die. You know, that's the kind of God that we are communicating to the world that we worship. So that's the first part, personal and intimate relationship with God. And it's an exciting invitation that is made available to all of us. By the way, he didn't owe you an invitation, right? It's not like, Oh yeah. Okay. I, I, I invited them, so I have to invite all these. No, no. Like God chose to invite you, and he did it at a great price. So this is not a responsibility. It's a privilege. We get to commune with a holy God. Completely unmerited, completely undeserved, and this is the joy that we step into as we commune with God. Second way that we defined it last week was personal and intimate communion with one another. It is a family feast, reconciling elder brothers with younger brothers, Jew and Gentile, male and female, etc., into one family and one body of Christ. A person that you thought would be excluded, that no longer is there. They're all, as long as they're calling upon the name of the Lord, everybody is welcome. Everybody has a place at the table. One thing that really pains me about a lot of the ways in which we, as Christians, um, uh, the the perception that most of the world has about Christians, um, it is oftentimes not in a good light, Um, especially when they see churches that have only one kind of person. It's like they're all from the same demographic, all same race, all same, same education level, all same. It it communicates to the world that the gospel is just for some people. And even after the gospel has reconciled you to God, which is a much wider gap than between you and your brother, 
you and a fellow human being. This is a much wider gap, but this seems to not be reconcilable. The gospel must not be powerful enough to reconcile that. It communicates something about the gospel and about God. And so this is something that we as Christians, especially in this generation, we have to take to heart. The whole racial thing that's happening right now in the States, that's a personal problem to us as well, whether you feel like you're part of it or not. As Christians who profess a gospel that, first of all, wasn't even made available to us in the beginning. It was for Jews. Any Jews here? No, right? We're all Gentiles. We're all grafted in, right? Are there Jews? Sorry. Are they? Sorry. I didn't mean to call you out if there are. But we're all Gentiles. We're all grafted in. We're all adopted into a lineage. So it's not like we came in like fully deserving. Here are my papers and this is why I deserve to be in the family of God. No. God extended an invitation outside of the Jewish people to bring in Gentiles from all over the world that would worship that same name. And so in that same vein, if we weren't excluded, how come we're excluding someone else? So when it comes to what a church should look like, we're called to not just be an organization or an institution, although we could be those things, but we're also called to be a family. We allow ourselves to be seen, to be to be inconvenienced at times. We allow ourselves to be not just to serve, but also to be served. We wash feet and we allow our feet to be washed. And in this way, we gather around a table. We gather around a feast that has been paid for and provided for by God. This is what a family of God looks like. This, if this doesn't excite you, I don't know what will. I'm trying to paint a picture for you of what is possible. There's nothing that is keeping us from that, by the way. There's nothing that disqualifies us from that. Nothing that has happened in our own lives. Nothing that has happened in the past. Who your pastor is, who your house church leader is, none of it will disqualify, disqualify us from entering into those two invitations. To love the Lord your God intimately and personally, and then love one another in communion, in perfect communion, in the same way that we love God. So our teaching our praying, our worship, our service, our giving, all of that should stem from that life-giving love and relationship that we've been brought into. Doing church, it shouldn't be like, oh, I have to go to church today. Oh, so terrible. It shouldn't be that. It's I get to commune with people. I get to meet my family today. I get to worship with my family today. I get to fix my eyes on God today and commune with him. That's what a church looks like. And so this is so important, not just to our church, but this is basically what the Bible says every church really should be. Every believer should be about. And so this is why we're making it central and first in what it means to call all to the family feast, to call all to the feast. Let me give you, so this is mostly theoretical. Let me just give you three very concrete examples of loving God and loving others. And I don't have slides for this, but... I kind of wanted to um, highlight these different, just three different ways. It's obviously not comprehensive. One of the ways in which we see people loving their neighbor as yourself week in and week out, whether you know it or not, is people who are serving in ministry teams here. They don't get paid. They don't have to come. They choose to come. People who are serving a tech team, praise team, children's ministry, welcoming team, every part of it. It's just a free will offering unto the Lord and unto the body of Christ. 
None of it is required of them. Nobody gives them a gold star or a cookie or a brownie or whatever baked good you want. Nobody's doing that. They're actually doing it unto the Lord as worship. This is the way that I'm going to love the Lord today. I'm going to, you know, welcome people who are lost out there in Yangja somewhere. You know, this is how I'm going to love the Lord today. I'm going to make sure that the slides, you know, are going well. This is how I'm going to love the Lord today. I'm going to, you know, help take care of and teach the kids today. You know how many parents have come to me and saying like, it is incredible to have volunteers who are willing to do children's ministry. And I've been able to worship for the first time in three years. You know what that means to a parent to have somebody serve you and wash your feet in that way so that you can uninterruptedly sit at a service for first time in three years. That's huge. That's, it means the world to a parent. It means the world to someone who has been struggling all week and has felt alone all week to come into a community that says, we'll take care of your kids. We'll, we'll take care of them for the next hour. You go into the worship service and love the Lord with all your might. We'll take care of the kids and we're going to love on them too. To have a community that embraces them in that way. And it's not an inconvenience like, oh, I have to watch your kid today. It's not an inconvenience. It's I get to serve you in this way and you get to love the Lord in that way. I've heard so many parents say that to me. It's... It's almost like more important than this, the preacher could be terrible. Hopefully it's not terrible, right? But the preacher could be terrible. But if there's people who are willing to serve their kids and serve their family in this way, that's a game changer for them. And it means the world to them. And so having volunteers that serve week in and week out in all these different capacities with no other reward than maybe a pat in the back or like, good job or high five or, you know, mostly it's just the Lord rewarding them week in and week out. That's a way of loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Second way, um, we kind of already mentioned this, is when it comes to financial giving. And this is something that, again, we tend to dodge around and are like, hey, don't touch our finances. Let's not talk about this. Can we talk about other things that are less material? But when it comes down to it, God cares about your finances too. And often that is one of the first places where if there isn't full surrender, if there isn't full trust, if there isn't a willingness to, Lord, what do you want to say about my finances? How should I give today? If there, there's a hesitation to bring the Lord into that area of your life, that might be an area of your life that is not submitted to the Lord. You might be loving the Lord with Lord your God in all these different ways, and yet this is an area of your life that remains untouched by the Holy Spirit. So it's very important for us to talk about this. It's highly spiritual to talk about our finances as well. And I'm not just talking about, hey, make sure every week, you know, you're giving something to the church and that envelope that's on the... It's not just that. It's even beyond this church as well. We, um, as a church, we're not like hoarding all the finances to ourselves as well. We've made a commitment to also give to missionaries. And we have even people within our midst here who live on support as well. And that is part of our act of love to not just be like, oh, I'm going to give the bare minimum, but we need to move as a community. We need to move into a place where we become not just I'm going to meet the bare minimum, but I'm going to become generous. That's what Jesus invites us into. It's like Jesus is saying, do you believe you have a father who cares about your needs? Do you believe you're going to be taken care of? It doesn't mean be reckless with your finances. It doesn't mean like blow it all, you know. That's not what it means. It means listen for the Lord. Bring this area unto the Lord and ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do with my finances? It's, again, it's one of those areas where often we're like, okay, when I have a bunch of money, then maybe. I'll pray into it right now. I'm like just scraping by as I can. 
I don't know if we'll ever reach a point where we're like, okay, I have loads and loads to just give out. In the little that you have, I really challenge you to give. In the little that you have, make sure you, you know, your, your bills are paid and stuff like that, right? But, but yet we need to cultivate giving. Doesn't matter how much we have, how much we are stewarding. It doesn't matter. Nobody is exempt from this as well. I love how there's, um, you know, we have uh, one of our pastors down in Pusan. Her name is Mina. Sorry, Mina, to call you out. Um, she has two, like, really cute kids. They look like minions, and they sound like them too, right? They're super tiny, and they receive a really, really small allowance. And what they've taught them to do is actually to tithe from that allowance. And so they sit down with their parents, they fill out this little form and put the money, the little coins in the envelope. And they're like, this is my offering to the Lord. I'm not too young to give to the Lord today. I'm not going to wait till I'm 20 and have a full time. I I choose to give to God now. And it's, it might seem tiny, but unto the Lord, it looks like those two copper coins given by the widow. It's like, you don't need all these bank accounts and all that to to be able to give. It is a posture of the heart first and foremost. And then that plays out and you act out on that in your life. So I love watching something like that. And I'm like, that's the way I would want to raise my kids. Yeah. Not like stingy, like finally get my allowance. I'm going to spend it all on me. No, it's like this actually as little as it is, it belongs to the Lord too. And I'm going to give to his body. I'm going to give to his house. I love that mindset, that orientation. And then finally, um, one more example of, of this great commandment is week in and week out. We talk about this here and there, but we have a team of worshipers and intercessors. And we talk about K1, K1, K1 all the time. K1, not everybody knows what K1 stands for because we use the acronym so much. It actually means kingdom first. Kingdom first. And so it comes from the verse saying, like, if you put my kingdom first and my righteousness, then all else will be given unto you. And so we're taking that as a promise. We're saying, okay, if this is true... And God deserves our time, no matter how impractical it feels, no matter how unfruitful, quote unquote, it feels, we're going to commit to coming week in and week out. And we're going to tell the Lord through our time, through our decisions, through our commute. Some of them come like an hour out just to be able to take part in these watches. And they'll say, God is worthy of my two hour back and forth commute. And plus the two hours, you know, one hour of debrief and two hours of the actual watch. And we have people week in and week out who choose to make that choice and tell Jesus, you're worthy of that. I'm not going to feel like, ah, that's such a waste. Oh, I got to be doing something different. It's like, whether you feel like the Lord moved that day or not within those two hours, you say, that's none of my business. Basically (laughs) it's like my choice and my responsibility is I'm going to choose to give you these two hours. And it's a very small way in which we show the Lord, like we could be doing a lot, more things. And yet we choose to say, no, he's going to get my full attention. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to put off all these different things that I need to do. I'm going to put off all these things. Those things can wait. I'm going to fix my gaze on the Lord. And I'm going to tell him that he's worthy for these next two hours. And he's going to be blessed and pleased by that. And that's a choice that the K1 prayer tab team makes every week as well. There's something so precious about that. Because in all these, diff- these three different ways in which I, you know, I, uh, I, I gave an example of, it's a choice in the end. The invitation is open. You get to do it. And no one else is, no one's going to really approve of your choices. No one else is going to pat you in the back. It's going to be really unto the Lord. But I promise you, the Lord, when you do something unto him and you do it out of an act of love, 
as an act of worship. He is pleased. He loves it. It's not like finally get my due. It's like, Dorothy, you chose to you chose to worship me for two hours today. I know how busy you are. I know what it takes for you to come out. I'm so proud that you would do that. And I'm so blessed and moved that you would think that that's a worthwhile way to spend your time. It's in these small ways in which God isn't demanding affection, demanding these acts of devotion from us, but we get to bless his heart. We get to move the heart of a God who needs nothing. He needs nothing, by the way. It's not like, ah, I'm so needy. Somebody needs to worship me for these next. No, he has 24 seven worship around the throne, right? He doesn't need your worship, but he wants it. And you get to choose whether you choose to give it or not. And that is a beautiful invitation. So that's what it means to call all to the feast. We do that by loving the Lord, our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving one another as ourselves. We love our neighbor as ourselves. Once we enter into this and we do it with joy, not grudgingly, not like it's a duty, but it's actually an invitation for us. Then it becomes so easy for us to want to draw other people into it as well. And that's kind of a little bit more of what we're going to be talking about next week, what it means for us to go out and call others into the same feast. We cannot call somebody else into a feast if you yourself aren't feasting first. You you cannot be like, uh, I'm having a really hard time. You want to have a hard time together? No. It's like there needs to be genuine joy that is overflowing from your life. You want, to, then you have no apologies. It's not like, uh, can you, you want to think about coming to, you know, house church? And like, uh, but it's like, if you genuinely enjoy it, you're like, hey, you are missing out right now. You need to come out to this. You need to be a part of this. And I promise you, it's going to bless you. Then you have no apologies in drawing other people to it as well. But if we ourselves aren't feasting first, it's a very tall order. I don't want to invite people to something that's like, eh, that I can't fully endorse. I want to invite people into something that is life-giving, something that refreshes me, something that brings me to life. And that, it, when I invite people to that, then I have no apologies. I'm like, no, you, you need to come to this. Like, promise you, you're missing out on this. And that is the same attitude that we take on as people calling others to the feast as well.